morning again. All right, I want you to imagine uh, for just a moment that you got to design your very own car. Okay, you went to a manufacturer and you said, I've got the car of my dreams picked out in my head. I want it to be such and such a color. Uh, I want it to have all of the following features. I want it to have this kind of sound system. Um, I want windows that roll themselves up with the push of a button. Can you imagine how fancy that would be, right? And I've got all the things I want on my car picked out, and I'm going to pay you, manufacturer, to build the car of my dreams. Okay, and so the manufacturer makes the car, gives you a call, and says, I've got great news. The car that you designed is made, and you go down to the manufacturer. You go in the showroom, and you see there it is, your beautiful car. You open the door, you slide into the seat, and you think, ah, oh, this feels good. This is my car. You take the key, you stick it in the ignition, you turn the key, and nothing happens. And you go to the manufacturer and you say, what happened? Why won't my car start? And the manufacturer says, well, isn't the paint job lovely? Yeah, the paint job looks good. Why won't my car start? Well, isn't that leather interior just so soft and wonderful? Yeah, it is. Why won't my car start? Okay, and imagine that the guy looked at you and said, well, we made everything exactly like you wanted it, but we left out the engine. Okay, other than that, everything's great in the car. It does everything you want it to do. It just doesn't have an engine. Okay, how happy would you be with your new car? Yeah, not very happy. Uh, you will get further down the road in a go-kart with an engine than you will in a Maserati without one, right? All right, the engine that makes the book of Romans go is covenant theology. I don't care how great and beautiful some of the teaching is that you can hear about faith and the Spirit and baptism and all of the rest of it if you don't understand that Romans is all about the covenant of God, then you don't understand Romans, you don't understand what Paul is really doing, and all of that other teaching about salvation and faith and baptism, all of those really important things need to be reinterpreted in light of the covenant. Okay, so as a preacher, uh, I think that if I can preach through Romans and you're not sick and tired of hearing me talk about the covenant, then I haven't done my job properly. Okay, if you get nothing else out of this entire sermon series on the book of Romans, if you just can tell me, preacher, Romans is about the covenant, I'll be happy. Okay? Now we get to chapter 10 which is right in the middle of a difficult section that we started last time. Okay? Chapters 9 through 11 are notoriously difficult for interpreters of Romans. Right? And I think that what we need to remember in order to make sense of this central section is we need to remember what Paul's big question is. What is Paul trying to answer in this three-chapter section? And I think Romans 9 through 11 is all about how is it possible that God can save so many Gentiles? And how can God keep out so many Jews from the kingdom and yet still be faithful to the covenant that He made with Abraham so long ago? How does the covenant actually work if all these Gentiles are in and all these Jews are out? Okay, basically, how does this whole New Testament thing with the Gospels and with Jesus and the church, how does all of that fit into the Old Testament thing, which was all about the nation of Israel and the promised land and the temple? 
Okay, so for those of us reading this text 2,000 years later, the question is, how does what we are doing today as Christians fit in with the story that God started with Abraham 4,000 years ago? What does what we're doing have to do with any of that? How are we part of the covenant? Right now, for the sake of time, I won't read all of chapter 10 to you. Yeah, but I want you to notice the brilliant and the very unexpected way that Paul answers this fundamental question. Uh, we'll start in verse 1. He says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the fulfillment of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes about this righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right, now again, remember the big question that Paul is asking. How does God remain faithful to the covenant and at the same time bring so many Jews into the kingdom and keep out so, I'm sorry, bring so many Gentiles in and keep so many Jews out? How can God do that and still be faithful? All right, now, this is going to sound crazy when I say this. You may not have heard this before. Um, your first instinct may well be to disagree with me. Um, and I could be wrong about this. Um, I'm not wrong about this, by the way, but I could be wrong. I mean, intellectually, we've got to at least hold that it's a possibility, right? Even if you would never believe that I'm wrong. Okay? Please hold all your objections and your applause till the end, right? But here's what I think Paul is doing, and I think this is brilliant. I think this is completely unexpected. Here's what I think Paul does in Romans 10. I think Paul answers this question by saying, the reason God can do all of this is because of the exile. Okay? I think Romans 10 is all about the exile that happened several hundred years before Paul writes Romans. All right, follow me on this. Again, before you object, hold all your objections. Okay, here's your 60-second review, your history of the Old Testament and of God's people. All right, we start out with creation and sin, right? Genesis 1 through 3, God creates everything. It's perfect, but with sin, we mess it up. Then we get into the covenant, right? And the covenant is what the entire Bible is about. God makes this covenant with Abraham to fix the broken creation. 
The next big event in our history is the Exodus. This is where we first become the people of God. God has redeemed us from slavery, made us His people. Then He takes us to the promised land. We conquer the land of the Ites, the land of Canaan, and it becomes the promised land that God gave to us. Several years later, we get the monarchy. Okay, this is the pinnacle of the power of Israel. Okay, this is when we could look around and say that we have done what God has wanted us to do. We are the people of God. These are the golden years. They don't last long and we end up going off into exile. The Babylonians come in. They destroy the land. They knock down Jerusalem. They level the temple. They carry off the majority of the people into captivity. And yet a couple generations later, we return from captivity. We get to go back home. We get to rebuild. Okay, the Syrians came and conquered the world, and so because of that, we get to go home. Sorry, the Persians came and conquered the world. Get my history mixed up. Okay, and remember that everyone that Paul wrote to in the book of Romans has this story in their head. Okay? They know this story of creation, covenant, exodus, all the way through to return. They think of this as their story. Now, What are the two most formative events in the life of God's people before Jesus? I'll give you a hint. I bolded them and underlined them on the screen. I think it's the exodus when God made us His people, and it's the exile when God nearly destroyed us. Now, when I've taught this before, people usually agree with me on the importance of the exodus. After all, we've seen the movie, Um, If you grew up in church, you've probably had a VBS that was about the Exodus. If you've ever read a children's Bible, several of the stories in that children's Bible are all about the Exodus. Okay, but I've had a lot of people say, well, really, is the exile on that same level of importance? After all, we've read lots of children's Bibles that never even mention the exile. Been to lots of Bible classes on the Exodus, probably not nearly as many on the exile. Okay, but did you know that there's 39 books in your Old Testament, and over 30 of them are about the exile. Way more than are about the Exodus. Okay, over 30 of the books in your Old Testament were either written to people who were getting ready to go into exile, people who were sitting in exile, or people coming out of exile. The most formative historical event of your entire Old Testament is the story of the exile. So my gripe is, whenever I finally get around someday to writing a children's Bible, I'm going to put a bunch of stories in there about the exile. Because it matters. It's important. What does it mean to be the people of God? What it means to be the people of God is that God almost destroyed us, but because He loves us so much, He spared a remnant and kept us safe. We went through the exile, now we are on the other side of it, and what does that mean? It's the exile. Okay, Now, you may say to me, okay, preacher, that's great. We will agree with you that the exile is important, but what does any of that have to do with Romans chapter 10 in which Paul never says the word exile? Okay, how can you claim that Romans 10 is all about the exile when Paul never mentions it? Okay, I want you to notice a couple things out of Romans chapter 10. Okay, Paul quotes in this chapter extensively from two Old Testament books. He quotes a lot from Deuteronomy, um, and not the entire book, but just specifically chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. And he quotes from Isaiah. Again, not the entire book of Isaiah, but one particular section. Okay, and I'll go ahead and and tip my hat to you, but um, or my hand. 
That section of Deuteronomy is all about the exile. That section of Isaiah, guess what it's all about? It's all about the exile. All right, the book of Deuteronomy is mostly a collection of sermons that Moses gives to the people before they go to the promised land. Okay, but in one of those sermons, Moses predicts that someday Israel will fail. He says, you're going into the promised land, but I can tell you what's coming. You say right now you're going to stay faithful to God, and that's great, but I know better. Okay, after a little while, you will forget about your God. You will start to worship the other gods of this land. And when that happens, God will punish you by sending you out of the promised land. He will cast you off into exile. But then Moses says, but because your God loves you so much, he is going to bring you back out of exile. God will restore his people. Okay, one quick section of that. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 30, starting in verse 4. He says, even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors and you will take possession of it. Okay, so what's he doing? He's prophesying about the end of exile. He says, he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Okay, I encourage you to go and read all of Deuteronomy chapter 30 because it is a great text on what it means to live on the other side of exile. And Moses says to the people very specifically, he says, you will know that the exile is over because circumcision will be a circumcision of the heart. You will know that the exile is over because the word will be in your mouth and in your heart. Okay, so the way to truly follow God after the exile is going to be with the right confession on your lips and the right belief in your heart. The people of God after exile will be the ones who make the right faith proclamation and the ones who have the right belief in here. You want to know when the exile is over? It's when people are making the right confession of faith. All right, Paul also quotes extensively from Isaiah in Romans 10. And notice Romans 10, 15, which is quoting from Isaiah 52, where he says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Okay, what's the other word for good news? Gospel, right? What is this quote from Isaiah about? What is the gospel, the good news that Isaiah proclaimed? Okay, it's the end of exile. Just like Moses is doing, Isaiah is making the same move. He says, God is sending you into exile, but exile will one day end. You will come out of exile. You will hear the gospel message that the exile is over, that God is near to you, and that we don't have to worry anymore because God has restored His kingdom. And in Isaiah, how do we know when the exile is over? Okay, skip down a few verses. Isaiah 52, verse 10. He says, The Lord will lay bare His holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all of the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Alright, in Deuteronomy, we know that the exile is over because the people of God will make the right confession of faith and they will have circumcision in their hearts. 
In Isaiah, we know that exile is over because on that day, when exile is over, we will be able to see all nations gather together under the banner of God Almighty because God will have displayed His power. Jew and Gentile will come together to see the salvation of our God. So the question that's running through the minds of the people in the first century is, when is the exile really over? And for most scholars running around in Jesus' day, most of the Jewish scholars would say the exile never really ended. The exile didn't end when we got to go back to the promised land. The exile didn't end when we got to rebuild the temple. We never regained our freedom like the prophets told us we would. We never saw all nations streaming together to see the salvation of our God. The exile never really ended. Yeah, we got to go home, but we were always subjected to some foreign emperor somewhere else. Someone else was always in charge of us. We are just the remnant waiting for the exile to finally end. How will we know the exile ends? When the Messiah comes, when we proclaim the right confession with our lips, when circumcision is of the heart, and when we see all nations gather under the banner of God Almighty, that will be the end of exile. I think according to Paul, the exile didn't end when the Babylonians got conquered and the Jews went home. The exile didn't end until Jesus established an eternal kingdom and all nations can now be part of the kingdom of God. Okay, so now, our original question makes a whole lot more sense about God keeping the covenant and letting in all of these Gentiles. Okay, well, how can God do that? Because the true people of God, the true restoration people, the true heirs of all the promises that God made to Abraham are not the Jews. Okay, the true heirs of the covenant are those who make the confession like Moses predicted in Deuteronomy. The true heirs are those who believe the good news like Isaiah prophesied, both Jew and Gentile. I think a lot of people rip Romans 10.9 out of context and use it to teach that all you have to do to be saved is confess that Jesus is Lord, right? You've probably heard that before, okay, Romans 10.9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul is not giving a one-step salvation plan here. What Paul is doing is he is declaring the exile is over. God is near us again. The kingdom is here. The redemption of God's people is complete. Do you see where we are in the story of God? We are on the other side of exile. Do you understand that Jesus' followers are the remnant, that we are the redeemed, that we are the saved people? I think what Paul is doing in Romans is very carefully building a new worldview in which we can see that we as the church are the restored people of God. We are the ones who are making the confession that that, uh, Moses predicted. We are the ones who are believing in the resurrection, the good news that Isaiah foresaw. I think what it means to be a people of God is it means that we are the restored people of God. If we believe the good news, if we are the Jesus people, then we are the restored kingdom of God. Does that all make sense? Again, that's very different than how I heard Romans 10 growing up. That's very different than what I've ever heard, had ever heard before. But I think what Paul is doing is something bigger than what we expected. I think Paul is showing us 
really the true expanse of the kingdom. Okay, so a couple quick questions, um, then we can eat pizza, and that'll be great. All right, what does it mean uh, that we are the restored people of God? Two quick applications for us. I think in the first place, it means that God will bless us. And this gets back into the stuff that Moses talks about at the end of Deuteronomy. Moses is telling the people, as you go into the promised land, if you do things God's way, it's going to work out really well for you. If you decide instead that you want to do things your own way, that's going to be a problem. It's not going to work out really well for you. You know, right now in my house, I have a three-year-old uh, who is at a stage where he likes to tell me no. Okay, it's time to go to bed, Sam. No. It's time to finish eating your dinner, Sam. No. Okay, he's very defiant. He's finding his boundaries, right? And so what Rachel and I are doing is we are determined to win, okay? Because we're the adults, right? And we're going to win this, this fight, this battle of the wills. And at the end of the day, I'm going to get, well, Rachel's going to get her way in our house, right? It's the way it's going to be. Okay, and so we're teaching our three-year-old, if you will do it like we tell you to do it, life is going to go a whole lot better for you. Okay, if instead you do it your own way, you're going to have problems. Okay? I think on the cosmic scale, we often act like three-year-olds telling our father, well, I'm going to do it my own way. And he tells us, if you would just do it the way I tell you to do it, your life would go a whole lot better. It would be a whole lot easier. Things would work. All right? Now, if we do everything God's way, are we still going to face some problems in this life? Guaranteed. Right? Jesus faced a lot of problems in his life too. All right? But if we will do things the way God told us to, that's the way that life works. That's the way things will be better. If we will follow what God tells us, he will bless us. Okay? That's part of what it means for us to be this people of God that Moses foresaw so long ago. All right, the second thing that this means is it means that Jesus is Lord. Again, what is the, context, or what is the, the content of the confession that we make? The confession we make is Jesus is Lord. You know, something I learned recently, read an article about it, is the history of the word priority. Okay, which is, what is interesting is it was only in the 20th century that we started using the word priority in the plural. Okay, we talk about having priorities, right? I've got lots of different priorities in my life. The original history of that word up until the 20th century when we changed it is you had one priority. The concept of having multiple priorities doesn't make any sense. You can't have a bunch of priorities. You can only have one priority. Uh, we try to make lots of priorities because we think we can do everything. We think we can do anything we want to do. We can do everything that we want to do. And we really resist having to make choices about what's really going to be the most important thing in our lives. When we declare that Jesus is Lord, we are setting up our singular priority. Everything else falls under that. Okay, there's no sense of us having obligations to lots of different lords in our lives, even though we often try, right? I want to serve Jesus, but I also want to serve my sports team. I also want to serve my country. I also want to serve my family. I also want to serve all these other things. And we try to keep everything in some kind of a balance that doesn't exist, okay? What is your priority? It's Jesus is Lord. Now, can I also serve my country? Yes, but that comes way under Jesus is Lord. Do I also love my family? Yes, but that's all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Do I also serve my job? Yeah, I do, but it's under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Okay? All of us have to ask ourselves a question, what kingdom are we really building? Are we part of building the kingdom of God, or are we still focused on trying to serve all these other lords that crowd out our attention? Jesus is Lord.
All right, we're going to continue this next week as we get into Romans chapter 11, because uh, Paul takes us just another step further, and we'll talk about that next week. Uh, but at this time, we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song, and during the singing of this song, I will be down front, one of our shepherds will be down front. Uh, we would love to talk with you or pray with you about anything that is going on in your life. Ultimately, this song is a time for us to be here as the church to serve you. And um, Before we sing that song, I want to close with a word of blessing over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace.